Section 12 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 4, Part 2. When the ceremony of anointing the queen took place, the Duchess of Norfolk took off her rich cap of state, and the archbishop pronounced the prayer as she knelt before him, and poured the oil on her head in the form of a cross. The ladies then opened her majesty's dress on the bosom, and he anointed her on the breast with the same ceremonies. The Duchess of Norfolk dried the place where the oil had been poured with fine cotton wool, and placed a fine linen coif on her majesty's head. Then the archbishop put the coronation ring, set with a fair ruby and sixteen smaller ones, round the hoop, on her fourth finger, and this ring Mary Beatrice wore to her dying day, and nothing could ever induce her to part with it. When Sancroft placed the crown on her head, the cries of, Long live the queen, resounded through the abbey, and many times redoubled and prolonged. Then all the peeresses put on their coronets, and the choir sang that appropriate anthem from the 45th Psalm. My heart is inditing of a good matter. I speak of the things I have made unto the king. At his right hand shall stand the queen, etc., while this anthem was singing, her majesty rose, and was conducted to her throne, which was placed at the king's left hand, and many steps lower than his. She made a very low reverence to his majesty, as she passed before him, to take her seat on her throne, where she reposed herself till the end of the anthem, while the peeresses, which was an unusual token of respect, came up to render her complimentary marks of homage. The queen's coronation medals, bearing her effigies, were thrown about at the same time. In consequence of the unfortunate difference in the religious opinions of the sovereign and his consort, from those of the great majority of their subjects, and of that church of which James, in virtue of his regal office, was the nominal head and defender, they did not receive the sacrament. At the coronation, says Bishop Patrick, I observed a vast difference between the king's behavior and the queen's. At the reading of the litany, they both came to kneel before the altar, and she answered at all the responses, but he never moved his lips. She expressed great devotion, but he, little or none, often looking about as unconcerned. When she was anointed and crowned, I never saw greater devotion in any countenance. The motions of her body and hands were very becoming, and she answered, amen, to every prayer with much humility. There was not the least sign of pleasure or transport, but all seriousness and composure of spirit. The prayers being ended, the king and queen descended from their thrones, and proceeded in state to St. Edward's Chapel, where they delivered their crowns and scepters to the Archbishop of Canterbury, by whom they were placed on the altar there. Then their majesties retired each into a separate retiring room, or traverse, where the queen reposed herself in hers, till his majesty was revested in his imperial robes of purple velvet. Then coming forth, and standing before the altar there, the archbishop placed other crowns on their heads, with caps of purple velvet. That which had been made expressly for the queen was of exceeding richness and elegance of form. During the recess, Mary Beatrice departed from the solemn rigor of royal etiquette by going in her state crown into the private box, where the Princess Anne and Prince George of Denmark sat incognito to see the ceremonial, and chatted affectionately with them for some time. 
Her Majesty returned from St. Edward's Chapel, preceding the King, holding her scepter with the cross in her right hand, and the ivory rod, with the dove in her left, her train borne as before, and, passing through the choir, she was again received under her canopy of cloth of gold by sixteen barons of the Cinque Ports, and thus guarded on either side by the band of gentlemen pensioners, she left the church, followed immediately by King James in his regalia, with the swords of state borne before him. As the royal procession passed from the abbey to Westminster Hall, the drums and trumpets sounded, and a vast concourse of spectators rent the air with acclamations and cries of, Long live the king and queen! Many fountains played, with jets of wine, according to the custom of the good old times. When their majesties returned to Westminster Hall, they reposed themselves in their separate retiring rooms, in the court of wards, till all the company had taken their places at the seven tables, which were laid for the privileged, or invited guests at the banquet. Then the king, preceded by his great state officers, made his entry, with his crown on his head, his scepter and orb in either hand, and seated himself in his chair of state, at the head of the royal table. Immediately after, the queen, wearing her crown, and bearing the scepter and the ivory rod, with the dove, her train borne by her ladies, came forth from her retirement in the court of wards, and took her seat in her chair of state at the king's left hand. Most of the ancient ceremonies observed at the coronation banquets of the Anglo-Norman and Plantagenet services were revived by James on this occasion. The lords, who claimed the office of sewers that day, went to the dresser of the kitchen to receive the dishes, the master of the horse officiated as sergeant of the silver scullery, and went in person to the kitchen bar to take assay of the king's meat, which was thus performed. Having called for a dish of meat, he wiped the bottom of the dish, and also the cover, within and without, tasted it, covered it, and caused it to be conveyed to the royal table, and attended by the procession of all the great officers of the household, including the Earl Marshal, with his rod, the Lord High Steward with his white staff, the Lord High Constable with his constable's staff, rode up the hall on horseback, preceding the first course. Thirty-two dishes of hot meat were brought up by the Knights of the Bath, bareheaded, followed by a supply of other dishes by private gentlemen. Then the Lord of the Manor of Addington had the satisfaction of placing the mess of Dillagroot before their majesties, and was afterwards knighted for his pains. Dinner being placed on the table by the king and queen's carvers, with the help of the earl sewards and their assistants, the lord great chamberlain, with his majesty's cupbearers and assistants, went to the king's cupboard, and washed before they presumed, to tender their services to the sovereign. Then the lord great chamberlain, preceded by the usher of the black rod, assisted by the cupbearer, and followed by the officials before mentioned, brought up the great basin and ewer, for his majesty to wash. James, rising, delivered the scepter with the cross to the nobleman appointed to hold it, and the orb to the bishop of Bath and Wells. Then the cupbearer poured water on his hands, and the lord of the manor of Hayden in Essex held the towel to his majesty. At the queen's washing, water was appointed to be poured on her majesty's hands by the earl of Devonshire, her cupbearer, and the earl of Bridgewater was to offer her the towel but she only used a wet napkin, which was presented to her by the Earl of Devonshire on his knee. Grace was then said by the Dean of the Chapel Royal, and their Majesty sat down to dinner. 
the banquet consisted of upwards of a thousand dishes among which were many scotch dainties appearing for the first time puzzled southern gastronomes with their hard names and novel forms and delighted the northern magnates by testifying their majesty's remembrance of the hospitalities they had received in scotland before the second course sir charles dymoke the king's champion clad in one of the king's best suits of white armour having a helmet on his head with a great plume of feathers white red and blue mounted a fine white charger rode into the hall preceded by the trumpeters and attended by his two esquires richly dressed one bearing his lance erect the other his target the earl marshal and the lord constable both on horseback bringing him up to the royal table where the herald-at-arms proclaimed his challenge and the champion flung down his gauntlet not entirely a needless ceremony as monmouth was taking measures to contest the crown this being thrice repeated and no objection offered the champion made a low obeisance to the king who drank to him from a gilt bowl and then sent the bowl of wine with its cover to him the champion with a low obeisance pledged his majesty again and then having performed his service rode out of the hall taking the bowl and cover as his fee then garter and the two provincial kings of arms with the other heralds and poor savants came and with the accustomed ceremonials cried largest to the king and having received his majesty's gift proclaimed his style and titles in latin in french and english and cried largest thrice while the second course was carrying up the mayor of oxford and the lord mayor of london were brought up to the king as assistants in the butlery and kneeling presented to the king wine in gilded bowls and received them as their fees then the lord of the manor of lyston in essex brought up a charge of wafers to the royal table and at the end of the dinner while the king and queen were eating their wafers came the lord mayor of london again with twelve of the principal citizens and presented wine to the king in a gold cup and the king having drunk thereof presented the cup to the lord mayor as his fee which service being performed the twelve citizens retired to dine at the lower end of the second table where room had been made for them below the aldermen dinner being ended and grace said their majesties performed their ablutions with the same ceremonies as before dinner and then the king resuming his orb and sceptre the queen her sceptre and ivory rod with the dove they withdrew with their officers of state their trains borne as before the queen attended by her ladies into the court of wards about seven in the evening and having delivered their regalia to the dean of westminster and the master of the jewel house they departed in the same manner as they came in the days of her exile and sorrowful widowhood mary beatrice declared that she had never taken any pleasure in the envied name of a queen yet she sometimes spoke of the glories of her coronation and descanted with true feminine delight on the magnificence of the regalia that had been prepared for her my dress and royal mantle said she were covered with precious stones and it took all the jewels that all the goldsmiths of london could procure to decorate my crown of these nothing was lost except one small diamond worth about forty shillings she told the nuns of shallow that no coronation of any preceding king of england had been so well conducted and that all the arrangements had been made under the especial superintendence of king james who ordered a book to be made of it 
there is a splendid original portrait of mary beatrice in her crown and coronation robes in the collection of his grace the duke of bucklew at dalkeith palace she is seated on her throne with an orb in one hand and the ivory rod in the other it has been by some mistake lettered a r and is in consequence shown as the coronation portrait of queen anne to whose exuberant charms it bears about the same resemblance as a provence rose to a full-blown red peony the english coronation oath observes the shrewd scotch lawyer sir john lauder of fountain hall is not very special as to the protestant or popish religion but runs somewhat in general terms the oath, in fact, was the same that was taken in the days of Edward the Confessor, no alteration having been made in it at the time of the Reformation. A stringent clause, for the protection of the Church of England, as by law established, ought in common prudence, to have been introduced at the inauguration of James the Second, but it was not. And he endeavored to take advantage of the omission by adhering to the original meaning of the pledge, not to the new interpretation of it almost the first use made by james the second of his royal prerogative was to release several thousand roman catholics and protestant dissenters who had been imprisoned for nonconformity among these victims of legalized bigotry were fifteen hundred members of the amiable and inoffensive society vulgarly styled quakers he also put a stop to the revolting trade then too much practiced by base individuals of informing against others under pretenses of religious differences for the sake of gratifying private revenge or sharing the fines james had suffered too much annoyance in his own person from the existence of the iniquitous statutes by which such crimes were sanctioned not to wish to ameliorate the case of others who stood in the same predicament but in his zeal to exercise the paternal prerogative of mercy and justice towards an oppressed portion of his subjects he rushed single-handed against the threefold barrier of the penal laws the test act and popular opinion the first two were destined to fall but not by the assault of regal power they fell gradually before the progressive march of reason and moral justice but not till nearly a century and a half after the abortive attempts of james the second to do away with them had involved him in ruin for they were then supported by the third that capricious giant public opinion against which princes can seldom contend with impunity the ostentatious parade with which james thought proper to practice the ceremonials of his church gave great offence to many of his subjects he was no longer contented with accompanying his consort to her chapel but opened a catholic chapel in whitehall to which he insisted on their both going in state to receive the sacrament attended by the great officers of their household his brother-in-law the earl of rochester who held the office of lord treasurer absented himself under the pretense of indisposition the lord of norfolk bearing the sword of state stopped at the door of the chapel my lord of norfolk your father would have gone farther said james your majesty's father would not have gone so far said the duke but he soon after made up his mind to attend the king as far as the gallery the duke of somerset refused to attend the queen's lord chamberlain lord godolphin was more compliant it was his duty to lead her by the hand into the royal closet and to conduct her to the steps of the altar when she thought proper to receive the sacrament and also to lead her back to her own apartment when mass was over 
privileges which no Protestant scruple could induce Godolphin to forego. There were no other terms, he was aware, on which any man might hope to touch the hand of a princess to whom these lines of Lord Falkland were peculiarly applicable. Such beauty, that from all hearts love must flow, such dignity, that none durst tell her so. Godolphin had been an active member of the exclusionist faction. James, on his accession to the throne, generously forgave him, and preferred him to the office of Lord Chamberlain to the Queen. The heart of the Whig statesman was not proof against the personal charms and graceful manners of his royal mistress. His passion was hopeless, but it influenced his political conduct, and he became what, in the angry parlance of the times, was called a trimmer, a term peculiarly applicable to this nobleman, who, being a double-minded man, was, of course, unstable in his ways. Mary Beatrice was present at the opening of the new Parliament, May twenty-second, 1685. She and the Princess Anne of Denmark came into the House of Lords together, without state, some time before the arrival of the King, and stood next above the Archbishop's, on the right hand of the throne. Her Majesty remained standing while the prayers were read, and even while several of the lords took the test and the usual oaths. So that, says Evelyn, she heard the Pope and the worship of the Virgin renounced very decently. Then came in the King in his robes, wearing his crown, and being seated, the commons were introduced, and he delivered his speech, at every period whereof the house gave loud shouts, he finished with announcing that morning's news of Argyle's landing in the West Highlands of Scotland from Holland, and expressing his conviction of the zeal and readiness of his Parliament to assist him as he required. At which, pursues Evelyn, there followed another vive le roi, and so his majesty retired. It does not appear that a special seat was provided for the accommodation of the queen, or that her presence was in any way recognized. The Commons voted the usual revenue to His Majesty. The rebellion of Argyle in Scotland, and of Monmouth in England, strengthened rather than shook the throne of James II, in consequence of the celerity with which both were put down. Monmouth landed on the 11th of June, 1685, at Lyme in Dorsetshire, set up his standard, and issued a proclamation, in which he denounced the king, as a usurper, a murderer, a traitor, and a tyrant, accusing him in the most intemperate language of burning the city of London, murdering Sir Edmundbury Godfrey, cutting the throat of the Earl of Essex, and poisoning the late king, his brother. Public opinion was at that time in favor of James II. Both houses of Parliament united in an address to His Majesty, offering to assist him with their lives and fortunes in putting down the rebellion. An act of attainer passed against Monmouth, three days after the news of his landing, was received. In the course of a week, Monmouth's forces amounted to 10,000 men. The enthusiastic welcome he received at Taunton encouraged him, in an evil hour, to proclaim himself king by the title of James II, and to set a price on the head of the usurper James Duke of York, as he now termed the lawful sovereign. The news of the defeat and capture of Argyle in Scotland was followed by the overthrow of Monmouth's cause at Sedgemoor, July 6th. He was taken two days after, concealed in a ditch near Ringwood. The agonizing love of life prompted him to write a humble letter of supplication to the king, expressive of his remorse for what he had done and imploring his mercy, and above all, 
to be permitted to see him and to speak only one word to him as he had that to reveal to him which he dare not commit to paper he also wrote both to the queen and the queen dowager begging them to intercede for him with his majesty to grant him an interview thus urged james very improperly consented to see him monmouth threw himself at his feet and implored for mercy in the most passionate terms the king had forgiven him very bitter injuries and intolerable provocations when duke of york on a personal humiliation scarcely twenty months before and the unfortunate prisoner must have deluded himself with the hope that he had only to reiterate his penitentiary protestations and promises with submissions proportioned to the aggravation of his offence to receive the like grace but the case was altered james had sterner duties to perform than the forgiveness of personal wrongs he was now a king invested with the responsible office of maintaining the laws that provided for the peace and security of his people two kingdoms had been plunged into the horrors of civil war and more than three thousand of his subjects had already perished in consequence of this attempt and it behooved him to take proper measures to prevent the repetition of such scenes the full particulars of what passed at this interview are not distinctly known i have been told says sir john bramston that the king asked him how he can expect pardon that had used him so to make me a murderer and poisoner of my dear brother besides all the other villainies you charge me with in your declaration to which monmouth replied ferguson drew it and made me sign it before i ever read it that so angered the king that he said this is trifling would you sign a paper of such consequence and not read it so he turned from him and bade him prepare to die lord dartmouth affirms that james told monmouth that he had put it out of his power to pardon him by proclaiming himself king monmouth insinuated a desire of returning to the church of rome in which he had been educated it was perhaps with a view of assailing james on his weak point his spirit of proselytizing that monmouth had so earnestly implored to be admitted to his presence and this might be the mysterious one word that he wished to speak to him for it is certain he made no political disclosures if he had any such to make he was unhappily deterred by the presence of the treacherous sunderland whom james with his usual want of tact had brought with him as one of the witnesses of this ill-judged interview sunderland whom he knew had been deeply implicated in all monmouth's former plots and had afterwards good reason to believe was his confidant in the late rebellion kennet endeavors to throw a most odious imputation on the consort of james the second in the following passage for which no other authority is given than the proverbially unfaithful evidence of hearsay the queen is said to have insulted him that is monmouth in a very arrogant and unmerciful manner so that when the duke saw there was nothing designed by this interview but to satisfy the queen's revenge he rose up from his majesty's feet with a new air of bravery and was carried to the tower mary beatrice could not insult the unfortunate duke in his distress for she was not present the interview took place in chaffinch's apartments whither the king came accompanied only by his two secretaries of state the earls of middleton and sunderland if instead of the latter it had been possible for the queen to have been present the result might have been very different 
but neither the etiquette of business or royalty permitted her to witness this secret conference in the apartments of one of the menial officers of the palace james who if we may trust the memoirs compiled by the historiographer of george the fourth had some difficulty in overcoming his natural inclination to spare the unhappy culprit when he begged so hard for life did not of course expose himself to the additional trial of bringing a tender-hearted excitable female like mary beatrice to be a witness of a scene which it was not in a woman's nature to behold without tears and intercessions in his behalf monmouth who had better means of knowing the disposition of this princess than those writers with whom it became a matter of business after the revolution to blacken the widow of james the second and the mother of the pretender calculated on her compassion in that dreadful crisis of his fate he had as soon as he was taken written to entreat her to unite her good offices with those of the queen dowager to obtain for him an audience of the king which audience would scarcely have been granted if she had been his enemy and after it had proved ineffectual he was told he must prepare for death he again wrote to both queens to implore them to intercede for his life with the king would he have done this if he had thought mary beatrice capable of hardening her husband's heart against him much less if she had already insulted him in his agony fox whom no one can suspect of a favourable bias towards james's consort expressly declares this story to be wholly unworthy of credit without more certain evidence it must be remarked also says that author that burnett whose general prejudices would not lead him to doubt any imputations against the queen does not mention her majesty's being present burnett in fact never misses an opportunity of reviling this princess whom he calls a revengeful italian lady that mary of modena was a native of italy cannot be denied but it is a strong presumption of the innocence of her life when party malignity was reduced to the imbecility of using that circumstance as an epithet of reproach an appeal to the prejudices of the vulgar disgraceful to a man who held the office of a christian prelate and called himself a historian if such a tale had been in circulation burnett would have been only too happy to have quoted it as an instance of the unamiable disposition which he imputes to her it has been assumed by some historians that james was cognizant of all Geoffrey's merciless proceedings because there was a constant correspondence between the latter and sunderland and sunderland's letters contain assurances that the king approved and thanked Geoffrey's for his zeal in his service but this appears only one of the links in sunderland's extensive chain of treachery he and his friend Geoffrey's played into each other's hands and amassed enormous sums by the sale of pardons to the wealthy a species of traffic of which rochester and father petre are also accused it is a notorious fact that jeffreys who was always in a state of exasperation of temper from bodily torture and the irritability caused by habitual intemperance scrupled not to set the king's authority at naught by hanging out old major holmes notwithstanding the royal grace had been extended to him Jeffreys pretended that it was an accident so according to queen elizabeth was the execution of mary queen of scots the barbarities of Jeffreys were lamented by the king when the whole truth was made known to him by two courageous and noble-minded men sir thomas cutler the commanding officer at wells and the good bishop ken 
who made a personal appeal to the monarch himself in behalf of some of the victims james not only listened to their representations but thanked sir thomas cutler publicly for what he had done and expressed a wish that others had imitated his humanity among the prisoners whose case came under the personal attention of the king was the popular orator story who had endeavored to excite the indignation of the people against his majesty by repeating in very inflammatory language all the libelous accusations that had been set forth in monmouth's proclamation the incident being recorded by a violent nonconformist edmund calamy is not liable to suspicion of overpartiality to the unfortunate sovereign when story taken and imprisoned for assisting monmouth was ordered before the king in privy council of a sudden the keeper declared his orders were to bring him immediately which he did in a coach without giving him any time to prepare himself in any manner only cautioning him to give a plain and direct answer to the questions king james might put to him when brought before the privy council story made so sad and sorrowful a figure that all present were surprised and frighted at his haggard and squalid appearance when king james first cast his eyes upon him he cried out is that a man or what is it his majesty was told it was the rebel story oh story said the king i remember him that is a rare fellow indeed then turning towards him pray story says he you were in monmouth's army in the west were you not he according to the advice given him made answer presently yes ain't please your majesty pray said the king to him you were a commissary there were you not again story replied yes ain't please your majesty and you said king james made a speech before great crowds of people did you not he again very readily answered yes and please your majesty pray said king james if you have not forgotten what you said let us have some taste of your fine speech let us have some specimen of some of the flowers of your rhetoric whereupon resumes edmund calamy story told us that he readily made answer i told them and please your majesty that it was you that fired the city of london a rare rogue upon my word said the king and pray what else did you tell them i told them he said and please your majesty that you poisoned your brother impudence in the utmost height of it said king james pray let us have something further if your memory serves you i further told them said mr story that your majesty appeared to be fully determined to make the nation both papist and slaves by this time the king seemed to have heard enough of the prisoner's speech and therefore crying out a rogue with a witness and cutting off short the king rejoined to all this i doubt not but a thousand other villainous things were added but what would you say story if after all this i were to grant you your life to which he without any demur made answer that he would pray for his majesty as long as he lived why then said the king i freely pardon all that is past and hope that you will not for the future represent your king as inexorable one well authenticated good deed ought to counterbalance a great deal of reviling and is certainly of more weight than fifty pages of unsupported praise 
Other instances of James's clemency towards those who had personally injured him are recorded. Ferguson, who had drawn up Monmouth's libelous proclamation, he freely pardoned. Also Hook, who had been confederate with some others to assassinate him, by shooting him in the back, coming from Somerset House. The cruelties practiced to the Protestants in France, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, had a prejudicial effect on the affairs of James II, by exciting a popular feeling of resentment against all members of the Church of Rome whatsoever. Yet James greatly condemned the measure as both unchristian and impolitic. He did more. He was very kind to the refugees. He was liberal to many of them. He ordered a brief for a charitable collection for them all over the nation. The king also ordered them to be denizened without paying fees, and gave them great immunities, so that in all there came over, first and last, between forty and fifty thousand of them. End of section 12